Let's turn in our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, the focus of our exposition today. This is what the Word of the Lord says, and I'll read all seven verses. Ready? It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my, well, of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed, hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to, to do for my vineyard that I had not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And it will also charge the, I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you already for the grace that you have dispensed to us in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the precious word that we have heard from uh, Pastor Lynn, and thank you for the time of meditation and worship that we've had. And Lord, in a text that is so predominantly about what you supply to your people, we are reminded today, Lord, of the glorious means of grace that you give us as your church. And so, Lord, we pray now, cultivate us, prune us, turn over the soil so that we might receive of the means of grace and help us, Lord, in your mercy and by your grace to receive from your good spirit, to receive all the nutrients, all the blessings, to receive all of the sustenance that we have by virtue of our vital union with your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh God, bring your word home to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You consider John chapter 15, that passage of the New Testament is a text that is often become a hallmark of Christian discipleship. I mean, you think about John 15, I think we can all quote some of it. Abide in me, I in you. I'm the vine, you are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. Bear much fruit. And yet, that classic passage out of the New Testament is not unique to Jesus because, as all commentators and others have pointed out, Jesus is actually pulling from this text right here in Isaiah chapter 5. Back of which, therefore, 
is this historical situation in the life of Israel. So when Jesus speaks of abiding in him, he is sort of standing on the foundation of what happened to the ancient nation when they failed to abide, when they failed to produce fruit in the vineyard, as the vineyard. And so this metaphor is so theologically dense and rich, and it just reminds us of the principle that Paul lays out for us there in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, Jesus, who is our life, because, as we'll see in a little bit here, as Jesus himself went on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember visiting Yosemite. I mean, you all have been to Yosemite or the Sequoia forest with the giant, you know, oak trees out there make these Texas oak trees look like toothpicks. The sequoia's got that tree you can drive through it. It's so huge, right? I remember walking through the forest there many, many, many moons ago and seeing a branch that had fallen off of the tree. That branch was about this high. That's the biggest branch I ever seen. That's a branch, by the way. It's not a tree. That's a branch that fell off the tree. I thought, look at the size of that branch. I mean, you could build furniture for days out of that branch. But it's just a branch. And guess what? As mighty as that branch is, by virtue of being not connected to the tree, to the vine, as it were, by virtue of its dislocation, its being severed from the root, no matter how mighty that branch looks in its appearance, it is dead. It's dead. Now it's just good to be burned. And what an illustration the Word of God has for us here in that, brothers and sisters, that it's only in so much as you and I are, number one, connected to the vine. That, that imagery of our vital union, that union with Christ, what the theologians call our mystical union with Christ, Christ, which means you've been born again and now you are in the Son. And by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, you are now uh, uh, benefiting from all the, the rich nutrients. You're like a branch that's just sucking the nutrients out of the vine so that you can flourish and live and bear much fruit. But also, as Jesus talks about in this, in this reality of abiding, there is an ongoing, progressive, right? Sort of, a, of, a, of an unending dependency that the, the, the branches have to the vine. It's, it's you are connected, and now that you're connected, remain connected, right? It's amazing the imagery that's being given to us there. So we're going to walk in and out of this text, but at the same time keeping our eye, knowing that Jesus wants to take this text somewhere himself. And so we'll walk through the text in that. But here we have to deal with the situation of the song. This uh, passage here is really the first part of what I'm going to do as a three-part series of very practical sort of discipleship level type of lessons from the book of Isaiah. So this is exactly 
what we talked about when we began going through the Old Testament book is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6, 11, and 18, the Apostle Paul repeatedly says, look to the nation of Israel. Consider what happened there because what happened there was for our instruction. It was for our learning, our wisdom. And so we want to see where did Israel falter and why and what happened and what can we today in the 21st century, 20. 500 years removed from Isaiah's time, how can we benefit today from the ancient nation and their, their example for good or for ill? Well, number one, let's deal with the imagery itself, the song imagery itself. Notice what it says. It says, let me sing now. So he's singing. The prophet is singing. And he says, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my well-beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And so right there, the, 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 the tender sort of nature of this song, sort of the imagery here so far is positive. It's one of flourishing. It's one of a fertile hill. And so in other words, we could say by this stage of the song, this is Israel as it was intended to be. It's kind of like reminds you of the Garden of Eden. The nation of Israel was to be flourishing, fertile, productive. It was to be just a, a glorious garden that you can go into. And uh, that's what God wanted for it. And uh, this kind of comes right out of, remember, chapter 4. Uh, I made a big deal out of that word there in verse 5, canopy, because that Hebrew word canopy kind of uh, lends to the idea of a bridal chamber, okay? And so this concept of the beloved probably coming directly from that. It's not disconnected. And so it's now, okay, so if God is in a loving relationship with his people, here is the song of the beloved, the Lord, who has a vineyard, in a sense, singing over his people, right? Loving his people, nurturing his people, tilling, as we're going to see, the conditions of the vineyard. But as to this point in Isaiah's exposition here, this is Israel as it should have been, as it was supposed to be. And he talked about this already. Look at chapter 1, verse 21, or I could just read it to you. You remember that? There he said basically the same thing. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderer. So in other words, there was a point in time when Israel reflected the image of her creator, when, when Israel, by virtue of being connected to her covenant, God was faithful, was righteous, was just. But oh, the way that it had gone astray at this point. And so what we're learning from here is that this song has everything to do with the people that are in covenant with God. And so here's a point of theology that we have to understand. In the Old Testament economy, Old Covenant really, you can be in covenant with God, careful now, but not be in a saving covenant with God or in a saving relationship with God. That is the difference between old and new covenant. You remember what Jeremiah says about the new covenant? Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 and following. He says there, he says, a new covenant I will make with with, with uh, uh, Judah in the future, basically, right? And he says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, which they broke. And so it seems like characteristic of the new covenant is that if you are actually in the new covenant, you are in an inseparable bond with God. Praise God. 
That's the nature of the new covenant. That's why it is superior. That's why the whole book of Hebrews is written to show us the supremacy of the new covenant. Like Pastor Lynn mentioned, under the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, those things cannot take away sin. Under the new covenant, the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood of Jesus removes sin. He cleanses the conscience of the worshiper perfectly. He makes a perfect atonement. So we go from the lesser to the greater, and we'll see this sort of throughout. But just because you were in the old covenant, you were God's covenant people, does not automatically mean that you had spirit-wrought salvation. That's important to keep your eye on the ball there because you can fall into the trap of thinking, well, now can you lose your salvation because these people were in covenant with God? And the answer is, of course, no. But there is a warning, nevertheless, God is addressing himself, therefore, to two people in this text. For those who claim to be his people, this song was the occasion of judgment. For those who were actually truly his people, this song became the gracious occasion of pruning, of cleansing, of future growth by faith. And so what we're looking at here is two peoples, two outcomes, two realities, and two destinies. Uh, He's already pointed this out going all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 9 when he mentions the survivors, the remnant. And then chapter uh, 1 later, he talks about those who are repentant that will return from exile, you see. So he's talking about the faithful and the unfaithful, the righteous and the wicked, etc., etc., etc. Jesus said this very thing, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, cuts it, he sharpens, shores it up. Why? So that it will bear more fruit. You see that? Will bear more fruit. So, in other words, for the true believer, the true branches, the warning of removal becomes the occasion for future and fearful fruit bearing in Christ who is divine. The burden of the rest of the song is to show God's unfailing and undeniable faithfulness to the people of God who are wayward. And as a matter of fact, here in this, verses 1 through 7, he's just going to state the sin of the people. He's just going to state the fact that he's gone astray. But in the rest of the chapter, he's actually going to detail what went wrong. So let's consider now the conditions of the vineyard, the conditions of the vineyard. We can see the gracious conditions of the vineyard here and how the metaphor sort of develops so much so that what, what we get is a picture of God as a loving owner of the vineyard who has been spent laboring over his people, doing everything imaginable so that his people could bear fruit. And don't think that this is unique to Isaiah. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah used the same imagery. Let me read to you a passage out of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. He says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into a degenerate shoot, a foreign vine? So in other words, imagine yourself there walking through a vineyard. You've been laboring over this vineyard. for, And you know how much pride farmers take in planting vineyards. They take care of them. They lift them up. They nurture them. They water them. Right? It's, it, it's really extensive. That's why the wine industry is so expensive, right? Because a lot goes into producing good wine, for example. And imagine as you go through your vineyard, all of a sudden, you see a foreign shoot. You see a foreign branch. 
It's not what you planted. It's something else. As a matter of fact, it's not, even a, it's not even a vine after all. It's some weed that's growing through your vineyard. How utterly devastating and disappointing that would be. That's the same kind of inju- uh, uh, imagery that he's trying to, uh, trying to recall here. Earlier in the prophecy, God, speaking through Isaiah, he gave them an invitation, remember? He told them to enter into redemptive reasoning with them. So with him, so he graciously called out to them, Come, let us reason together. Here too, I guess, if we come up for air, in this moment of clarity, God is addressing himself to the people. Look at what he says, verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. There it is. It's just a, it's a sort of come to judgment, right? Assess the situation between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce only worthless ones? Several things come into view as we consider what the prophet just said here. Number one, the conditions and the cultivation of the vineyard, the Jewish nation who's in covenant with God, is, 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 is one that has been conditioned by an all-benevolent owner, the vine-dresser Lord, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. E.J. Young, in his brilliant three-volume commentary on the book of Isaiah, says this, The owner of the vineyard is one who has nothing but goodwill for men. Well, he used the word not but we don't use not like that anymore, so uh, 21st century man, right? But you get the point. He has nothing but goodwill for men. In other words, that's all he wants is good for us. Think about that. The heart of God. And what is this referring to ultimately? What I have done for it. What I have done in it. What is God talking about? To what is he pointing? What are these gracious influences? What is this faithful cultivation of the vineyard that Yahweh is talking about? How about this? Building a whole nation on a promise. On a promise that he made to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, right? In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then what? The exodus delivering, redeeming a people out of bondage, giving, giving them His law, and then opening a pathway through the sea of death so they can cross on dry land and enter into their promised land. What did God do for His people? Everything. He gave them the promise. He delivered them. He gave them His good law. He gave them a land, Canaan. Later, as we're going to see, we went from a tent that was mobile to a tabernacle built, or excuse me, to a temple that was built in stone. He gave them a kingdom. If you want to see all these national blessings, just go to Nehemiah chapter 9. I went there just for a moment, and I thought, I can't because I'll never get out of there. There, uh, there as the people confess their sins before Yahweh, they begin, this is interesting, right? As they are seeking God's forgiveness for their sins and things that they've done wrong, they begin to chronicle all the faithful things of God, all the faithfulness of God, all His faithful deeds, all of His wondrous deeds that He had done for them. He They begin to recount the goodness of God. That's how our repentance should be today. We should begin 
as we repent of our own sin, as we ask for forgiveness and seek His grace, we should begin to recount in our mind all the goodness of God that has been shown to us in Christ. As Paul says, every spiritual blessing is ours in Him. He has lavished us in the Beloved. God is good, in other words. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? What is the doctrine coming from this? The doctrine that's coming toward us here is that God, the God of our sanctification, is motivated solely by what for what is good and holy and right for his people. I've said this before. What God cares about, I compare this to the modern church. What God cares about for us is what is going to build us up spiritually, what is going to advance us in our sanctification, in our piety, in our holiness, in our conduct, and in our character. That's what God cares about. I mean, yes, God is a good God. Providentially, He takes care of us. As Psalm 119 says, God is good and He does good. He takes care of us. He puts a roof over our head. He provides us uh, work, sustenance, food. He puts food on the table for us. Sure, He gives us these things, but these temporal things, oh, they are minuscule compared to the spiritual things that He has provided for us. And therefore, is it any wonder, brothers and sisters, that having stated in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus, that Paul then goes on to say in verse 18, may God open the eyes of your heart. Because that's all that's left. You have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. But because of our finite, fleshly, carnal mind that is clouding out the eternal, we need the eyes of our heart enlightened. If not, all we'll see is the surface. All we'll see is the physical. And so when the physical calamities come, when the physical things are kicked out from beneath our feet, our health goes Our finances goes, right? Friends and family move away. Dysfunction arises. Sin disrupts our temporal peace. We lose sight of every spiritual blessing. And so I pray in the same same spirit, I suppose, may God open the eyes of our hearts. Second, it reminds us that what we need for our sanctification has been provided for us so that we are without excuse. What more can I do for the vineyard? He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, Peter says. Every promise that you're ever going to need to live the Christian life, every promise that you're going to need to get to heaven and to shun hell has been given to you in Christ. You lack nothing. You don't need to go somewhere. Unlike modern spiritual, you know, adventurists, you don't need to go on a pilgrimage. You don't need to go to some holy site. You don't need to go seek out the sacerdotal powers of a priest. You don't need to jump through the hoops of sacrifices and offerings. It's all given to you. You have everything that you need in Christ and for your sanctification. And therefore, the Apostle Paul can firmly say to the people of God, Jesus Christ 
is our sanctification. He is our sanctification. Therefore, stringing texts together, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Therefore, the rotten fruit of the nation here in this text will simply be stated later, detailed. The context, though, I want you to see this. Look at chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 and just bounce around the, 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 the chapter with me for a second because this is where we're going. This is, this is what we're going to lay out. This is how we're going to structure the rest of the chapter. And that is, they forget the law. Uh, they forget his word. It's just like constantly forgetting his word, right? That's what's like so much in the... I remember teaching through Hosea, and that's what's so repetitive over and over. They forgot the Lord. They forgot his law. They forgot his word. Forget, forget, forget. What does James say? Don't become a forgetful, you know, hearer of the word of God, right? Don't forget what you look like in the mirror of the gospel. Don't walk away forgetting your sins. They neglect the knowledge of verse, thir- verse 12. They forget God's law. Later, they neglect the knowledge of God. Verse 13 captured there so beautifully. They neglect, they undermine, they devalue the knowledge of God. And later on, brothers and sisters, and hear me very carefully here, this is a warning coming from us at chapter 5. No wonder Jesus, no wonder Jesus was depending upon this OT text. You know why? Because as Israel progresses and becomes hardened in their sin, they get to the point they despise God. It's not just that they just, I don't want to be religious anymore, you know. I just think the world's got, you know, what did we talk about a few weeks ago? You know, all these, you know, leaders out there that just, you know, want to apostatize and go into the world. They think they've done something. And I said something in that sermon like, I'm trying to quote myself here, but the heroin rush of apostasy will run out very quickly. It's just a shallow, superficial blip on the screen compared to the eternity of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. I mean, think about, wow, the perdition, the perdition. Isaiah's question reminds us, brothers and sisters, God has given his people better than what they know to give themselves. This is so important for us today, brothers and sisters, because what I'm calling you to right now is to take advantage of the means of grace. Wake up. Awaken yourself to the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Well, theologians have debated over the means of grace, but they boiled them down at least to two. The Lord's Supper and baptism. These are the ordained sacramental means of grace for the church. I probably would open that up a little bit further to say, yes, but other means of grace. If we want to say the means of grace, what are we talking about? We're talking about like what God uses to grow us and to prod us along the path of our sojourn as pilgrims. How does he shepherd us along the way? I would say the word of God is a means of grace. Fellowship is a means of grace. Church membership is a means of grace. All of these, worship is a means of grace. I mean, weren't you lifted up as we were worshiping? Because these things, this is what God has ordained for us. But here's a, here's, a, here's a double-edged sword here, brothers and sisters. Don't go astray from the means of grace. You know how you begin to do that? You begin to undermine their importance. You begin to see them as boring. 
normal, average, just can't we do anything other than sing, sit, preach, pray, out the door? Can't we come up with something more novel than that? A little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more spectacular than that, right? Uh, no, remember, just like Israel, God knows what you need more than you do. He knows exactly how to cultivate his vineyard. He knows how to provide you the things that you need. He does for you better than you would do for yourself. You know what? A new gospel has arisen today. You know what it is? The gospel of new. Newness. Why? Because as R.C. Sproul said in his wonderful book on worship, Christians are bored. And so, what do we need? We need rock climbing walls. We need Xboxes in the youth group. We need rock bands. We need lights and fog machines. And we need people, you know, diving off the stage, I guess. Parachuting in like the pastors. Yeah. Wow. I, ah, fun to watch it, but don't call it a church, you know. At least tell me I'm going to the circus and we'd be okay. The gospel of new... We treat church today like we treat our technology. I need the latest. I need to be upgraded. I need the new thing, the new gadget, the new app, the new tech. I need the new features. What's the new conversation? I need a different means of grace. You see? New kind of church, new kind of program, new language on sexuality, new approach to social justice. We need new stuff, lest we lose our relevance, brothers and sisters. I, I, I you know, I'm, I have a great advantage over all of you in this room right now. Well, some of you, because some of you do it. I preach at a college campus weekly, sometimes. I know what's out there. It's trash. It is so shallow what these kids are running to today. It is so soul destroyingly thin. I mean, this Wednesday, first person at the microphone, this guy named Olivia, who just fully transitioned. I mean, fully. Except for, hi, my name's Olivia. <laughs> yeah, you missed something there. I mean, it's like, am I in reality right now? I'm in some interstellar it still takes my breath away. When I stop marveling at the sin of the culture, I have a dead heart. You know, Francis Schaeffer, I didn't agree with Francis Schaeffer's apologetics. I am, a, I am dogmatically Vantilian, presuppositional, transcendental, Greg Bunsen apologetics. Some of you, it's like, I know what he means. Some of you, like, what on earth? But one thing that I know from people that knew Schaefer, he would get on his knees in his class and weep for the culture. What professors do that today? He wept for the culture. He was devastated by the culture. Israel stopped caring. They stopped caring what direction they was going, what was developing in the land. They start caring. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 6. Forget the gospel of new. 
Leave that behind. You know why? Because the gospel in the Bible tells you, forget the gospel of new. Go to the old paths. Ooh, I like that. Jeremiah, and man, we need a little King James right there. NASB is good. It's literal. Okay, I got it. But man, sometimes King Jimmy just comes through like nothing else. Jeremiah, who spoke King James. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Of course, wrote it this way. He said, ask for yourself the old paths. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and seek and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest, shalom, Shabbat shalom for your soul. And they said, we will not. We will not walk in it. You see, where are you at right now in redemptive history as we look at the timeline of the Old Testament? You're in Isaiah, which means Isaiah, Micah, right around that, 8th century B.C., getting into the 7th century. Israel's ways are beginning to fade. Those ancient paths are starting to fade out of view, but by the time Jeremiah writes, they are gone And suddenly, Jeremiah has to remind a nation who is in another nation at the time, i.e. Babylon, heading that way in terms of total exile. He has to remind them who they are. Who they are. He's got to remind them, don't worship stumps. Can you believe it? Don't cut down a tree and worship it. Don't cut down a tree, make an idol, and then the other part of the wood, make your supper. He has to tell them that. This is how depraved and reprobate they have become. They had the law in their possession. And therefore, it's almost like what's going on here is God is warning us, don't lose sight of the ancient ways. Don't lose sight of that. Brothers and sisters, you know what we say to the gospel of the new? I'm I'm on this because I'm on it. But you know what we say to that? Just read Hebrews chapter 11, man. Hebrews chapter 11 is pointing the believers in Hebrews, you know, the the audience of Hebrews, he's pointing them to look back at people who lived 3,000 years before them and saying, behold your heroes. Don't be so dazzled by people around you today. This terrifies me about living authors. It's like, man, because, you know, I'm I'm into books. I thank God Meredith Klein is dead. No, he he lives. He's he's thankful too right now. He can't go any astray because I've been really benefiting from Klein. I thank God Voss is already in glory. He can't go astray. And yet some of the guys that are writing today, it's just like, just stay on the ancient path, brother. I thank God the book of Hebrews says, look to the old guys, look to Noah, look to Abraham, look to them, look to Sarah, look to the patriarchs. And so what happens in light of all of this? God removes the people, and it's terrifying. Look at what he says, verse 5. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do. Is it any clearer than that? He says, 
I will remove its hedges, and it will be consumed, its hedge. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. This is an act of decreation. This is undoing the fruitful garden-like experience that Israel once was. We're going back to the Genesis chaos of Tohu Bavohu. We're going back to disorder, not order. Remember, when did the divine proclamation come? Good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. It was after God overcame the chaos, the spirit brewing and hovering over the darkness and void, and after He fashions it, cultivates it, after He brings the land to flourish, then He pronounces it good. And so here we're going into a decreation where, the, in a sense, Israel is unraveling. So sad. The nation is about to be devastated. Absolutely devastated. He will remove, remember chapter 3, verse 1? He's going to remove supply, support, bread, water. All of its crops devastated. All of its aqueducts dried up. All of the trade gone. Stock market crashed. Economy in the tank. It's over for this nation. It's over, at least on this national level, leading to the inevitable exile. Now I want to talk a little bit about hermeneutics for a second. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, please. This is Isaiah's equivalent to Hosea's pronouncement of lo-ami. Lo-ami is one of those Hebrew phrases that you as a Christian need to memorize. What does it mean? Not my people. Wow. This is where God basically in a covenant lawsuit, Hosea was cast in the language of a divorce bill, divorce certificate. God is saying, it's over. I'm done with you. I'm cutting you off. I'm giving you a certificate of divorce. I'm breaking the covenant. I'm moving on. But what happened here? As devastating as the apostasies of the nation of Israel are in the Old Testament, listen to me carefully, it took me forever to realize this, forever to realize this, thousands of pages of theology, so here I give you the cliff notes. These Old Testament apostasies are but a precursor to the ultimate apostasy, what Daniel calls the wing of abomination. The wing of abomination is meant to make you think of the very pinnacle of the temple, the very high point. And there, at the apex of the religious people, a great abomination took place. What's the abomination? The betrayal and ultimately the murder of the Son of God. If it didn't take your breath away, it took God's breath away. Matthew chapter 21, are you ready? Jesus foretells of this very thing. Ironically, in the same vineyard metaphor language. Listen to another parable, 21.33. Matthew 21.33. 
There was a landover who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it. Sound familiar? He built a tower. He rented out to vine growers and went on a journey. So he entrusted it to people. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Wow. They said to him, he will bring those, re- they, excuse me, the crowd said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, as anybody with any sense of justice would have said, and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. You understand just how brilliant Jesus is and what he just did. <laughs> he just made the apostate Jewish nation speak prophetically better than they knew about the Gentile inclusion that is coming at Pentecost. He will rent it out to other vine growers. Some other people will take over the nation. Wow. Jesus said to them, Did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, listen carefully, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, i.e. the vine growers you just prophesied about, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Wow. No time for commentary. I just hope you appreciated the reading of the Word of God. Forty, you know, how many verses in that chapter? Fifty verses or something? Let me summarize it this way. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. As the Jewish nation is persecuting the disciples, the church, the apostles, what does the prophet, uh, uh, what, is, um, excuse me, what does the apostle Paul say? What did he say? Wrath has come to them to the uttermost at last. Here at the end. Wow. But Scripture is clear that the church under the new covenant represents a newly constituted people, i.e. John 15. He is the vine. We are the branches. See, it's like a revolution of redemption. Starts over again. Another vineyard, as it were, right? Although organically connected. Don't hold me too literally to these distinctions I'm making here. You get the point. 
And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. In the same way, Israel failed to abide, and therefore no longer, no longer would God provide them the gracious influence, cultivating the land, pruning them, turning over the soil of their souls. But now just briars and thorns, the thorns of sin have come in, and they've choked out the word of God so that his gracious influences have been spurned for the last time. And now the people's heart has become hardened and unresponsive. Turn with me to another section here of Hebrews chapter 3 because in Hebrews chapter 3 again the dreadful developments in the nation's history become a lesson for us to learn, sobering lesson of our own sanctification, brothers and sisters. The author of Hebrews points us in the very direction here. He says in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12, this is what he says, after just getting done talking about the nation that he laid low in the wilderness for their rebellion, now he says, Take care, brethren. You know what that means exegetically? Watch out. Look out. Warning. It's like a flashing warning, warning. <laughs> That's what take care, brethren, means. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you, any of you, I got that. That's a sermon right there. From the pastor down to the youngest member of the church. Let there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. There he is in all of his blazing glory, the living God, just blazing in beauty and glory, full of being and life. And in your heart, this is why Jesus calls them the sons of the devil, in your heart, you turn away from that. Wow. No wonder hell's for eternity. You're rebelling against the eternal living God who has his, your soul in his hand and you make a willful, conscious act of rebelling against him. Oh. Oh. And therefore, but there's hope there is hope in the midst of all of this judgment. Thank God there's hope. Thank God. Thank God the sermon doesn't end right now. Amen. Let's close in prayer, which means you've got to endure me for a little longer. But the sermon goes on. It goes on to life. It goes on to hope. It's not the end of the story. Perdition, judgment, wrath, hell. If we have ears to hear, this is why... Jesus, I think that's why he says, you know, let him who has an ear, let him hear. Do you hear? Can you hear? I live a little bit of this at UNT. I'm preaching. Do you know the psychological trauma I go through every week having to deal with? <laughs> a police officer walked by me the, one of the times I was preaching. He looked up at me and goes, man, you must love abuse. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's more complicated than that. But do you know that I'm preaching in the hopes that that young girl over there sitting under that tree that's been listening to me for two hours, I hope she hears. I hope through the clutter of all the chaos and all of the debating and all the back and forth, I know how it is. Trust me, at pastoral conferences, what I do is not popular. 
Pardon the pun. That'll sneak up on some of you. It's not popular to do what I do. I tell you what, it's not. I don't know why. It's just pastors don't want to do it. But, and I know why, because it's shocking, it's edgy, it's confrontational. It could be deemed as you're being mean or you're being spiteful or you're just being combative. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I lack grace. But I know over the years that someone can hear. I know it. I don't do it for that. I do it for the glory of God first, second, because I'm commanded to in Scripture, and third, because I know that God can use me, pathetic, miserable little me. He can use me as a tool, a vessel, as the means to bring in His elect. Hallelujah. That's all that I care about. That's it. I can endure buckets of abuse knowing that that young man or that young lady is going to come up to me after all the preaching is over when no one's around and they come up to me and they say, you know what, I've been listening to you, blah, blah, blah. And then they start weeping and trembling and shaking and telling me that they now have a restored faith in the Word of God. It's not even comparable. It's not comparable. I totally lost my place. Encourage one another. So it's talking about the hope there's a way out of all this, and it's a practical means. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today. You know that in Hebrews, that word today is theological code. You know what? It's theological code for a time of redemption. It's theological code for it's a valley of decision. It's a time to decide. Now, there's opportunity, right? We're not enough. We're not, we're not so much a Calvinist that we can't say, you have an opportunity to repent and trust. You must, as a matter of fact. You must, and let me compel you, as long as it's called today, as long as God has not rolled back the universe like a scroll, there's time, and as, as long as there's breath in you, you may still use your breath to repent. Repent. Come to your senses under the hand of a mighty God. Be careful of the deceitfulness of sin that you are not hardened by it. You're not hardened by it. Oh, man. Okay, let me say this last of all. As we consider this song, Isaiah 5, and the metaphor of John 15, when you take them together, what the Spirit is saying in the book of Hebrews, brothers and sisters, is that the movement of progressive revelation is one of a fortiori, from the lesser to the greater. From national, physical, geographical plane level to eternal, spiritual, redemptive level. See how that works? From the theocratic covenant of Moses to the redemptive covenant of Jesus Christ. And as Hebrews 12 goes on to say, you better listen to him who's speaking because he warned them, he warned them on earth, Sinai, thundered from the mountain, and now he's warning again from heaven, Zion. Not, not, this time it's not with lightning and flashes of thunder. It's through His Son that He's thundering forth. Not the law, but the gospel. Amazing. That's why Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus speaks greater than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood says justice, justice, justice. 
the gospel speaks of mercy, grace. Brothers and sisters, the last thing I have for us today is whether or not the song that God sings for us today, what's going to be that song? Is the song over us going to be that we did not abide, that we don't take advantage of the means of grace? Or is God going to sing over us in His great delight, enter in, my faithful servant, to the joy of your Lord? Well done, right? You are my vineyard. My Father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And that fruit is for your joy. So abide in me, I in you, and you will bear much fruit. That's so glorious. That's exactly what Israel missed. Is that in abiding and obeying and submitting, you find joy, delight, eternal life. Let's pray together.